Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Well, the day has arrived that some of you thought would never come. We find ourselves at the end of the letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27 is where we are this morning. We are concluding our long series through what I consider to be, along with many other people in the history of the church, the greatest letter ever written. We started this journey, we haven't been in it every Sunday for the past two and a half years, but for the past two and a half years off and on, 74 Sundays, we've been looking at the letter to the Roman church, and we started off in January of 2017, I read you these two quotes from these two greats in church history. Listen to how these two giants describe this letter that we are concluding. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that this epistle, speaking of the Romans, is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word. Have you memorized Romans in the past two and a half years? By heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. John Calvin said, about Romans, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. I agree with Martin Luther and John Calvin and their sentiment about the letter to the Romans. So my plan is to read this last portion of chapter 16, these remaining three verses, And then for us to work through, to explain these three verses quickly, which I think are a summation, a a doxology of all that Paul has written up to this point. And then I have, (laughs) don't leave, I have 14 points that we will move through very quickly. I started out early this week thinking, I want to summarize Romans in about five statements. And then it just kept going. And then Tuesday happened. And then Wednesday. And and actually, just this morning as we were singing a song, I thought, oh, I forgot. So really, there should be 15. But anyway, let me read Romans 16, verses 25 through 27, and then pray. Paul concludes this great letter, and he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray. Lord. Your word is truth. Sanctify us by your word. For my friends that do not know Jesus in this room, open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel. To my brothers and sisters that are trusting in you, strengthen us so that we would obey you more and bring you more glory. Thank you for Romans. Thank you for this glorious letter. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Before we get into these 14 points and a little summary of what Paul has said here, did you notice that in most of your Bibles, if you're using an ESV version, last week we left off on verse 23. This morning we started reading in verse 25. In many of your translations, there is no verse 24. Why is that? Now, if you're using a King James version of the Bible, or maybe a New American Standard version of the Bible, or maybe a New King James version of the Bible, you will have verse 24. 
And verse 24 in those copies of the Bible is essentially what the end of verse 20 is in Romans 16, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So in some translations, the end of verse 20 is a little bit further down and is given this verse 24. Why is that? Does that mean that there's something wrong or untrustworthy about the Bible? No, actually, if you understand why that is the case, it actually helps us understand that the Bible is actually more trustworthy. So the Bible is written, obviously, by these, by these human authors in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, and then in the New Testament, the apostles or their ministry associates. And so, as we read last week, Paul's actually, he's, he's, he's speaking the Roman letter through his scribe, Tertius, and so it's an, there's an actual first copy of Romans, which we, we do not have. That, that is obviously perished. But through the centuries, these copies of these New Testament books were copied over and over and over again thousands of times by scribes who took their job very seriously and really did incredible work copying Greek manuscripts of what Paul and Peter and James and John and the other New Testament writers actually wrote down. Around the 14-1500s, when the Bible began to be translated into English, they were operating off from Greek into English they were operating off a certain set of manuscripts, a, a certain number of copies from these Greek Old Testaments. And that's what we have as our King James Version of the Bible, which is an excellent translation, a beautiful translation of the Bible. And in those copies, which was a smaller group of copies that they were working off, translating and piecing the Bible together, that we have fragments of different letters that together make up the whole of the New Testament. Verse 24, that sentence found itself there in that particular place rather than the end of, at the end of verse 20. Well, over time, we've discovered many more copies of manuscripts that were actually much earlier than the ones that they were working off in the first English translations in the 14, 15, 1600s. And so we realize that very likely one of the, some of the early scribes made some mistakes in, in a very small mistake and actually attributed that line there that we have at the end of verse 20 uh, and moved it to at the end of verse 23. Now, why this should bolster your confidence is that as we discover more manuscripts, more copies of the New Testament, we see amazing agreement, I mean, unbelievable accuracy. And we do see the more copies of the New Testament manuscripts that we get, we do notice minor discrepancies, whether it's a, maybe a spelling error here or there, or in this particular case, the end of verse 20 that was moved to the end of verse 23. Know at this time that there weren't any chapter or verses. But what that tells us is, is that it's sort of because we have all of these copies that agree with each other, and then a few copies that they were working off of in the 1500s that, that had that verse somewhere else, it actually bolsters our knowledge that we know that this was maybe a mistake by a scribe, and the more copies we have and the more agreement we have, it actually encourages us because now we know that these discrepancies, as minor as they are, were just merely grammatical or copying errors by a scribe. So actually, the more we know, the more copies of the New Testament that we have actually increases the accuracy of the fact that we know that what we have is a very accurate representation of what, what was written down. So in a strange kind of way, the fact that we know that this was a minor discrepancy and that it was very minor and this very small group of manuscripts that they were working off of 500 years ago now, now that there's light shed on it, actually encourages us because the Bible as we have it is what was written down by these New Testament writers. So that's why there's no verse 24 in most of your translations. And if you have a verse 24 there, maybe it's bracketed and it's exactly what is at the end of verse 20. And by the way, all of these discrepancies that we find in copies of the New Testament over the years are very, very minor things. There may be grammatical errors or uh, misspelling a name or something like this where a few words are in a different spot, which again increases our confidence that what we have, the fact that we know where all of these discrepancies are and that they're incredibly minor, increases our confidence 
in what we have today as being a faithful translation of what these New Testament authors wrote. Okay, now into verse 25. What is Paul saying here in this brief doxology? He is saying that everything that he's written up to this point is for the glory of God. And it's meant, this gospel of God that he has been writing to the Roman church, it is given to strengthen them and to bring about the obedience of faith. Look there at verse 26, at the very end there, right before the last verse. He says that all of this was given, all of these prophetic writings, this mystery of the gospel that has now been revealed in the New Testament through the New Testament apostles, through the New Testament books that we have, the shadow of the Old Testament that has now become the reality of Christ living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death, rising victoriously, commanding all people to be to repent and believe, has been revealed, is now known, is fully disclosed. And all of that is to bring about the obedience that God would make people that would become new Christians, new creations, born again, as Springer read for us from John chapter 3, from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, that we would not just have our sins forgiven, but that we would be transformed and obey God, and that we would glorify God, because the sum point, the reason for the universe, the reason for the creation of all things, is to bring about the glory of God. And that's how Paul ends his letter. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's summarize this great letter. We'll move very quickly, believe me, because we've got to get ready for VBS. 14 reasons, 14 reflections on the gospel of God in Romans and how it strengthens us and brings about obedience of faith. What does Romans teach us? Romans teaches us, number one, that our real problem and greatest need is God. Our real problem. It teaches us what our real problem is and what our greatest need is. We see at the beginning of Romans that the the, the real problem is that God is holy and that we are sinners. In fact, go, go to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3 and verse 19, the first three chapters of Romans are all about the sinfulness of man and the righteousness of God and how those two things cannot abide together. Romans 3 verse 19 says that the conclusion of Paul about how every Jew, every religious person, and every Gentile, every non-religious person, no matter where you come from, no matter who you are, no matter what your upbringing, we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God and the whole The whole world, every mouth is stopped and everybody, the whole world is held accountable to God. All of us, by nature, are sinners. We have this great need. God is holy and we are not. And we see that God is holy. We see it at the beginning of Romans chapter 1 about how God is righteous. It's his righteousness which is our problem and we are not righteous because of our sin. And because of our sin and his righteousness, Because God's righteousness is true and holy, because of that, he must judge sin. And so we see in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that the biggest problem for humanity is not a less than optimal life here on this earth, but it is, as verse 18 says, the wrath of God, which is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And we are all included in that ungodliness. So Romans teaches us, friends, that our real problem and our greatest need is God and his holiness and our sin. How does this apply to us, friends? Friends, it it tells us what we actually need, what our greatest need is. It clarifies for us what the real problem is. There is no doubt if you read Romans what this whole Bible is about, what this letter is about. It is about the fact that God is holy, that we by nature are sinners, and it is the clear presentation of how we can be made right with God. There's clarity in Romans about what our real problem is and what our greatest need is. But then Romans gets into the good news, which leads us to the second thing Romans teaches us, is that it teaches us how we can be made right with God. Romans teaches us how a sinner who is unrighteous, which is all of us, the whole world's mouths are stopped, accountable before God, how sinners can be made right with God. 
Now, if you remember anything from Romans, you know, one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible is that I want us to know the whole Bible. I want us to see how the whole Bible fits together. There's lots of reasons for it. We can't skip hard truths in the Bible. But one of the reasons I think it's helpful for us to primarily spend most of our time preaching through books of the Bible, not that we don't handle topics and things along the way. Of course, we do that occasionally. But one of the reasons why I think it's helpful to preach through books of the Bible and to spend time meditating in it is because I am under no great illusion that you remember any particular thing or sermon that I preach. In fact, I don't remember what I preach. Even last week, I can't, I mean, I have it all kind of written down that sometimes I reference. But as we marinate in God's word and we work through it in this kind of successful, successive way, I want us to have 10 years from now, not a memory of three points that all started with the same letter. And I'm not dogging that type of preaching if it, if it maybe fits, but when, when we try and just do this kind of canned preaching for successful living, we forget that quickly. But if 10 years from now, we open our Bibles and we've written down some notes in Romans chapter three and Romans chapter four and things that God illuminated by his Holy Spirit as we walk slowly through this text, that's gold, friends. I want us to remember what the gist, what the rub and the roll and the, the ebb and the flow of Romans is. And if you get anything from Romans, get what Romans chapter 3 is saying. It is the greatest, clearest explanation of how sinners are made right with the holy God. And if you get anything out of Romans chapter 3, get this word propitiation. Romans chapter 3 verse 24 and 25 says this. It says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So how can unrighteous sinners be made right with a holy God through propitiation? What is propitiation? Propitiation is the truth that God Holy God, God the Father, sent God the Son, who is fully God, always has been God, did not become God, God eternal, God in the flesh, God the Son, to become a man like us, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Fully God, fully man. That's a mystery that we can't fully understand, but we can see and trust and confess in as we see it in the scriptures in Hebrews chapter two and Hebrews chapter four. And Jesus lives a perfect life and then lays down his perfect humanity and his eternal holiness on the cross where God the Father pours out the wrath of God for ungodliness on his son who is completely innocent. And Jesus becomes, and here's what this word propitiation means, he becomes the wrath of God absorbing sacrifice. The wrath of the Trinity is poured out on Jesus the Son as a man on the cross, and because he's not just a good man, not just a perfect man, but eternally holy, he has more than enough holiness to satisfy all of the wrath of God against all of mankind's ungodliness. It's satisfied, it's quenched. The, 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 the wrath of God is extinguished by Jesus on the cross against mankind, against all those that will trust in him. And he rises again in victory and defeats death, defangs it, takes away its power, and now commands all of us to repent and believe. And he gives the grace, he gives faith as the gift by which we are enabled to obey him. Springer read for us earlier in John chapter three that in order to believe this, you must be born again. So what God does when he saves a person is he recreates their dead heart, he makes them alive and enables them to believe what Jesus has done in his wrath-absorbing sacrifice on the cross. He makes them alive, he gives them faith, 
and he gives them grace whereby they trust in him and their sin is satisfied. It is propitiated and sinners who could not do anything to make themselves right with God are made right with God through the sacrifice, the life, the death, the resurrection of the Son of God. Friends, that's the very heart, not only of Romans, but it's the very heart of the Bible. It's the very heart of the universe that this is how God the Creator reconciles people to Himself through His Son. Friends, that's how you become a Christian, through God's work in your life to make you alive, give you a new heart, to believe and trust in Jesus and not your own righteousness and put your hope in him. And if you have not done that, friends, do that even now. And you may be saying, uh, you just told me I'm dead and I need a new heart, so how can I? I know, the, the, the only thing you bring to the table is your acknowledgement that you can't do it. And if you're realizing that you are helpless, friends, that's a great place to be. And I think that's evidence that God is giving you a new heart. So turn from trusting in yourself and put your hope in God. That's how you were made right with God, through the wrath-absorbing sacrifice of Jesus. Romans teaches us thirdly, and this is a follow-on, an implication of what we've just said. It teaches us that we are saved by grace, not by works. This is Romans chapter 4. Friends, we're saved, and this was the whole point of the Protestant Reformation. The Catholic Church at that time, and quite frankly, still to this day, teaches a false gospel that teaches that a person can be made right through their works, through things like being baptized as an infant, giving to Rome, penance. And the Bible teaches the exact opposite. And as this Catholic monk, Luther, began to read the Bible, he started to realize that the church was teaching the opposite of what the Bible actually says. That a person, the, the church was teaching that a person could be made right through the things that they do. In fact, there was, this, there was this fundraiser coming through where Luther was living at the time trying to raise money for the building of this Catholic basilica in Rome and was, had this little jingle like a commercial saying, give, to, this, give to, the, to the building program. And they had this little jingle that said that, that, that when the copper, meaning the coin, in the bowl rings, a, a soul from purgatory springs, meaning you can give to the building campaign that we're doing. And if you give, it'll be a good work that'll help spring your relative from this unbiblical notion of purgatory. And Luther read that, and he, as he, was re- he, he heard that as he was reading through Romans, and it caused him to flip. And he discovered the gospel and said, no, nobody is saved by their works. We're saved by Jesus' work, by his life, by his good deeds, not our own. And lest anyone wonder about what Paul is saying in Romans, he writes all of Romans chapter 4 about the greatest man in the Old Testament according to the Jews, which was Father Abraham. And Father Abraham was this wonderful man who was obedient to God And the point that he makes about Abraham is even Abraham's righteousness, even Abraham's obedience is a gift that was given to him. And even Abraham was not made right by anything that he did, but by the faith that he had that God gave him as a gift. And so we are made right with God, not by our works, but we are saved by grace. Friends, how does this apply to us? I think that most of us in this room probably believe that, but do not we, are we not prone to making ourselves, to feeling like we need to keep ourselves in the love of God by our performance? In fact, Paul writes another letter to the Galatians, and in Galatians chapter 3, we won't take the time to read it, but the Galatians had been saved by grace And now they were starting to go back to works of the law. And Paul writes to them and he says, who bewitched you? Who cut in on you? You were saved by grace. Don't try and make yourself continually worthy to God by the things that you do. Now, are are works important? Yes, we're going to get to that. But they don't commend you to God. They just prove the grace of God in your life. They don't make you saved. In fact, we were talking about um, what book we were going to go through next. And it's probably going to be a shorter Old Testament book starting sometime this fall. 
I was thinking about New Testament letters, which we preached through, and 15 years ago when we started this church, I think the first book that we preached through was Galatians. And looking back on that, I wouldn't mind a redo on Galatians. <laughs> um, so I was looking at Galatians chapter 3 this week, thinking, oh, I think I understand that text a little bit better. So in the course of in the history of Crosspoint, we, we may do some, uh, I may take some mulligans on some of these books that we've preached through. Romans teaches us that we're saved by grace, not by works. Four, Romans teaches us that there are only two types of people. Those in Adam or those in Christ. Listen to what Romans chapter 5 verse 17 says. It says, For if because of one man's trespass, meaning Adam, his sin, death reigned through that one man. It means that all of us are children of Adam. Every person in this room are born as children of Adam and Eve. And because our first father sinned, everything that comes out of that fountain, everything that comes out of that spigot now, inherits the sin nature of Adam. That's what Romans chapter 5 is telling us. Death reigned through that one man. But then, much more, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. So Paul is being very clear here about humanity. He's saying that you're either in Adam, you're either still dead in your sins, or you're either in Christ receiving righteousness, which is clarifying for us. There are no people in the middle ground. There are no innocent islanders in the Pacific. There are no people that are kind of morally good enough to commend themselves to God. We are all, by nature, either in Adam, dead in our sins, or saved by grace through Christ and in Christ. That is the state of every human. Which one are you in? Are you in Adam? Or are you in Christ? What about your neighbors? What about the people that we work with? Are they in Adam or they are, are they in Christ? This should give us urgency, compassion, clarity in our evangelism. Truth number five, Romans teaches us that union with Christ changes everything. Union with Christ changes everything. Look at Romans chapter six, verses three through, through eight. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been, listen to verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for the one who has died, meaning to their old self, has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live for Him. So here's the charge that Paul is handling in Romans chapter 6. He's saying, he's, he's, he's answering the anticipated objection about the the, the scandalous nature of grace. You mean, if I'm not saved by anything I do, Paul, and if it's all by grace, if grace is that big and that glorious, then how does it matter how I live? And Paul is saying, look, you're not saved by anything you do. We're justified by faith alone. But his point in Romans chapter 6 is that if we are truly justified, true justification will lead to real sanctification. In other words, if you have been truly born again, it will manifest itself in your life. And now you were dead to God, now you're alive to God. You were dead to obedience and righteousness, but now you're alive to those things. And now you're dead to your former way of life. It doesn't mean that we're sinless or we're perfect. We will work these things out with fear and trembling. But Paul is telling us that those who are in Christ have been changed. We have a new master. And he uses this analogy in Romans chapter 6 to say that we are united with Christ. We're united with him. We're, we're, we're joined with him by faith. We're now his. He, he is in us and we're in him. It's the same analogy that he uses in, in Ephesians chapter 5 talking about marriage, about how a husband and wife are joined together as one flesh and nothing can tear them apart. And he's saying here in Romans chapter 6 that we are joined together with Christ. We're in him. He's in us. We're united with him. And friends, this is 
This is ground zero in our fight against our remaining sin. We talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves. And, and what does that mean when we say that oftentimes here in our church and in our, in our church culture? Do we, just, do we just kind of recite this sort of cadence or this sort of this, this phrase that God is holy, we're sinners, Jesus died for our sins, and you must repent and believe in him? That, that's the baseline of the gospel. Well, clearly that's a helpful thing to recite to yourself. But what we mean when we talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves is this implication of Romans chapter 6 that because of what God has done through Christ to atone for your sin, to remove his wrath against you and then make you alive and join you together with his sin, we now have a new master. And so when we are in that moment of temptation, when we are struggling with sin, we remind ourselves, according to Romans chapter 6, that we have a new master. We are joined to a new king, and it's Jesus. And this old king will rear his head, but we remind ourselves, and we slay that old king with the sword of the Spirit, which is Romans 6. That's how you fight your sin, friend. And we fight it together. We confess these things. We grip arms with one another, and we encourage one another, and we confess sin to one another, and we bring light on our struggles, and we bring this word and this truth to bear on our struggles. And all of this is the glorious sunlight of the gospel, which dries up the sin that grows in dark places. And friends, every single one of us has to fight like this. Every one of us has to fight like this. And this is the clear consequence and implication of the gospel in the life of a true Christian, that union with Christ changes everything. Let me tell you, there, there's, there's, there's some, I'm just thinking of a young man in this room who might be just in a, a steel cage death match with some habitual besetting sin. And you, you're getting kicked in the teeth by some habit you cannot break some attitude that you cannot shake. And it's not just men. It's women too. It's all of us. And I want to say to you, 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 I want to encourage you, brother or sister, to immerse yourself in Romans 6 and the glory of the implications of your union with Christ. With your union with Christ, that sin will no longer master you. And fight, fight. Come on, we are so, you know what American culture and convenience has made us? It's made us spiritually wimpy. Because, because we, can, we can change the channel, we can, we can set the, we can turn on our cars when we're not even in them. You can press a button and heat up your truck. And if you don't think, I'm, I'm all for that. In fact, if you want to give me a car that will start with a little button, I'll take it. I'm not, I'm not, that's a gift of God. Thank God for technology and all these things. And thank God for just the blessings of modern life. But friends, we realize that if we're not careful and wary, it can produce in us a complete lack of grit because nothing in our culture requires grit. And, and the Christian life, Romans 6, requires grit. And so as you're in a fight with sin, don't just give up at the first sign of distress or temptation. Dig in your heels. Bring people around you. Don't come to church once every four Sundays. Live with Christians. Give your yoke yourself to the body of Christ, which is to yoke yourself with Jesus, and dig into Romans 6 and live there for as long as it takes until you overcome that thing. Nothing's more important. Where were we? Six. We gotta fly. Romans teaches us what the Old Testament and law has to do with us today. Man, Romans chapter 7 is about the Old Testament and the law, how we've been freed from the law. We've been freed from this Old Testament law. It is no longer binding. Jesus has fulfilled it. He hasn't abolished it, though. He's fulfilled it. And now Romans chapter 8 says that this Old Testament law, which was a shadow, is pointing to the gospel, and now the spirit of the law of 
Christ, the law of life, lives in us. And now all of the principles of godliness that this Old Testament written code was pointing to are now written in our hearts. So even though the Old Testament law is no longer binding, the New Testament law of the law of the Spirit of Christ is written in our hearts so that we can fight, like Romans 6 calls us, to obey him. So we read God's law in the Old Testament and we thank God that we can eat shrimp and bacon and shirts with two types of fabric in them, but we realize that it points us to a kind of holiness a kind of distinctness that the Old Testament in shadow form is calling God's people to so that we can live for the glory of God. Romans teaches us, number seven, that God has purposes in our suffering. God has purposes in our suffering. All these things that he's done for us, he's left us here to limp along. Why has he done that? To show, to use our lives as a showcase for his for his glory, a showcase for the fact that Jesus is better than this world. Look at Romans 8, verse 17 and 18. He says, if your children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we talked last week about false gospels, the false prosperity gospel. I, I, I don't know. I think if you read verse 17 clearly, it just absolutely undermines the whole logic of the prosperity gospel. If you are an heir with Christ, you will suffer with him. And that the pathway to glory is suffering. Servants do not outrank their master. If Jesus suffered trouble, we will suffer trouble. But God has purposes in that trouble. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. God has purposes in our suffering. And then look all the way down at verse 28 of Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So no matter what a child of God is going through, it's not random. It's not just flawed. Floating out there in the universe, God calls every atom to serve his great ends in the redemption and glorification of his people. Nothing that happens to you is random. And therefore, we can... We can we cannot be afraid of the phone call. We cannot be afraid of the doctor's report. We, we can lean into all of life knowing that God is good and that everything I face has a purpose in his plan for my life. Truth number eight, Romans teaches us that God will bring all his people all the way home. <laughs> i got to read this. Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is, listen to this text, friends. If God is for us, you know what? You may not memorize all of Romans like Luther says we should, but I think you would do well to memorize Romans 8, or maybe just Romans 8, 31 through 39. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with, also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So that means, friends, that if you are still wrestling with some residual guilt from some sin and you're a believer, it's been forgiven. The, the, the devil has been silenced. Nobody can condemn you. Jesus' satisfaction is enough for you. And then it says that he is at the right hand of God praying for you. On top of verse 26 of Romans 8, it says that the Holy Spirit, even though you're too weak to know, what to, to know what to pray for, is praying through you with groans and utterings that we don't even understand. So we've got the Trinity praying to one another, the Spirit and the Son praying to God for you. And as a consequence of that, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. Jesus's and the Holy Spirit's prayers always get answered. 
but the way he prays for us isn't the way we always understand or think he should. But what he prays for, which is that God would bring us all the way home, always comes true because now, verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you can't read verses 31 through 39 and praise God, then I want to spend a little bit, well, everybody's clearing out chairs, lest you and I talk. Because this, this will make you run up steps in Philadelphia and like, well, somebody play Eye of the Tiger right now. That'll get you going. That's a verse to live on. That, that, that's a, that's, God will bring all his people all the way home. Truth number nine, Romans teaches us that God is sovereign over salvation. This is what Romans nine is all about. God is sovereign over salvation. This is probably the most controversial truth in Romans, probably the most controversial truth in the Bible, but it's clear. Verse 11 says that, speaking of these twins that were in their mother's womb, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Paul, knowing that we might object to this truth that God is the one who ultimately decides who will be with him forever. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? He's anticipating the objection of our man-centered flesh, and he says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Listen to verse 16. So then it I think meaning salvation clearly. So then it depends, it rests on, it's decided by, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And friends, this truth should give us great hope. Because we are fallen, and because even if we're Christians, we still see through a mirror dimly, we interpret this text negatively. We interpret this great truth of God's salvation, sovereignty and salvation, we instantly view it negatively. But friends, flip that on its head. This text shows us that nobody is beyond salvation. Nobody's beyond God's reach because it doesn't depend on the ability or the capability or the awareness of a person. God is able to save whomever he wants and he does because he is rich in mercy. There's much more I can say about that, but let's keep going. Tenth, Romans teaches us that our, so- that our sovereign God makes evangelism necessary. This is just like the Holy Spirit. He takes the most controversial truth in the scriptures of God's utter sovereignty and salvation, and he puts it right next to Romans chapter 10, where it says now God uses people. Now he uses the means of people preaching the gospel to bring about the thing which he has willed. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 13. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul, doesn't that contradict what you just wrote in Romans 9? How it depends all on God? What do you mean here in Romans 10 that how are they here unless we go? God in his sovereignty has fastened himself to the means of evangelism. And God brings about his sovereign will through mankind responding to his call. And he teaches us that evangelism is necessary. So we need to be a preach that isn't just about us for and no more, but gets the gospel out to all peoples everywhere. 11, Romans teaches us that God is in total control and faithful to his promise. That's what Romans 11 is all about. It's about how God will come back around in the last day and he will save a great multitude of Jews. I don't have time to develop this. We preached through this when we were going through Romans chapter 11. But God is, in the Old Testament, he established a people, an ethnic people, the Jews. And he said, through you I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. 
and they rejected him by, by and large. And so the gospel spreads to the Gentiles. And now he says to the Gentiles, through you I'm going to make the Jews jealous. And in the last days I'm going to bring a great multitude of those ethnic Jews back to, to faith in Christ. And friends, human history has followed the exact pattern, the exact template that Romans 11 has set out. The point is, is that God is in total control and is faithful to bring about what he has promised. He's in control. He's in control of dictators. He's in control of presidents. He's in control of governments. And he does whatever he pleases. Twelfth, Romans teaches us that the church is a family and that we're meant to do life together. Romans 12, verses 9 through 13 says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another. He's speaking to Christians in the church together. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Love people not like you. All of this great salvation in Romans 1 through 11 is to be lived out with people who are not like us, who are inconvenient to be around. Did you get that last part? Who are inconvenient to be around. You know one of the great blessings of being part of a church, and a church that has a whole bunch of different type of people in them, in it, is that we can be hard to be around. And actually that's God's design for your discipleship. Yoke yourself to the inconvenience of being around people that are hard to be around. That's good for your soul. It's good for your soul. Outdo one another in showing love towards one another. I think a healthy church is made up of people from every tribe and tongue, people from all over the place, from every different little segment of society. It's, it's, you know what? Awkwardness should be a kind of central theme in every church community. <laughs> It really should, man. When everybody just looks good and acts good and they're all from the same little neighborhood, it doesn't smell like Jesus. It just doesn't. But again, there's where American culture, I think, if we're, if we're not aware, it can disciple us in the opposite direction that the Bible wants to take us. We want to be around people that are easy to be around, people that will make us feel better about ourselves, people that will help us promote ourselves. When the Bible takes us in the other direction, be around people who are hard to be around. Hospitality, love of strangers. Yoke yourself to the inconvenience of life in the local church. Let's keep going. Romans teaches us, 13, that God will one day make everything right. Man, Romans 16, verse 20, we looked at it last week. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I talked about this a little bit Wednesday night as I was meditating on it before we prayed. When I read verse 20, I'm encouraged and I'm stretched because I realize that Paul wrote this about 2,000 years ago and he said that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So God's definition of soon and my definition of soon are often different. And so the Christian life requires patience. And all the promises of God are not necessarily fulfilled in these 80 or 90 years. But we can be sure and certain that God will crush Satan under our feet. Jesus, who came first as a lamb, will come back as a lion, and he will judge finally and fully all sin he will vindicate all of his people and he will bring us all the way home. That's what he does. God brings all his people all the way home. Did I skip that point? Did I skip point eight? Well, let's keep going. It's too late now. Verse 14. God teaches us that he alone deserves all the glory. That's the point of Romans, it's the point of the Bible. Friends, it's why you and I exist. Romans teaches us that God alone deserves all the glory. We don't exist for ourselves. This church doesn't exist for ourselves. You don't exist for yourself. 
Your marriage doesn't exist for yourself. Your parenting, if you have children, doesn't exist for itself. We exist for the only wise God, for his glory forever. And so as I live my life, I want to think about how I'm, how I'm being a, a soldier in an infantry battalion. How can I position myself? How can I act? How can I hold myself in this little mission field that God has given me to reflect, to shine light on the beauty of Christ? How can I, how can I be a soldier in that, in that setting? How can I be a, a stay-at-home mom interacting with other people, other moms? How can I care for? How can I discipline? How can I encourage? How can I nurture my child so that God receives all the glory? How can I work at a cubicle in thesis? How can I interact with my coworkers? How can I do my work in a way that somehow doesn't end up bringing glory to me, but brings glory to God? How can I serve in this church? How can I encourage people? How can I walk into this building with my head on a swivel looking for people who I might encourage so that God would receive all the glory? How can I love my spouse so that God would receive all the glory? How can I engage somebody in confrontation or somebody that sinned against me or somebody that I'm in an argument in a way, in a gentle and meek spirit of Christ so that God would be glorified in the way that I act? How can I preach? How can I pastor? How can I make the whole Bible not make me look clever and cause people to be impressed with me but how can I decrease so that God would increase? How can we as a church orient what we do so that we don't just make this place a monument to ourselves, but that God would receive all the glory? How can I use my finances, my paycheck at the end of the month so that it wouldn't just rest on me and making me comfortable in this life, but how can I give? How can I be sacrificial? How can I push all of the chips into the middle so that every arrow in my life is pointing to the point of Romans to the only wise God be glory forever and ever. That's what Romans is about. That's what you're about. That's why Jesus came. That's the most important thing in the universe. Let's pray. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable your ways. For who has known your mind, O oh Lord, or who has been your counselor? who has given a gift to you that you might be repaid. For from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be glory forever. In this church, in this world, in each of our lives, amen and amen.